You know, we really think through the songs that we sing here, uh, the way they tie in, and there's always these little lyrics. I mean, this, this build your life on the love of God is so profound. How do you do that without the written word? And we are really left to our own. This is why people today, right now, are devoting their career to translating the Bible into the native language of people who don't have it. It's that important. If we're going to build our life on this, if we're going to build our, uh, our, our marriages and our family on this, if you're a business owner or a business employee, man, how do you build your work on the love that God has for you? The written word is profound in this. It's why God gave it to us. It's why God preserved it for us. We're talking this morning about the reliability of the Bible. Last week was part one, so if you missed it, go back and hear part one. That's sort of a setup for part two today. If you haven't done so, click on the link below. There's a little handout. You can take notes digitally. If you are old school, uh, you get to print your own handout, and you can follow along. You know, one of the profound things that goes on with being in a community group, and this works for the pastor as well, is I listen better if I think I'm going to use something again a few days later. So I'm going to take better notes on a Sunday morning. I'm going to invest my time and sit with it better if I think I'm going to be discussing it and trying to massage it into my life a few days later with a group of my friends from the church. We're talking about the reliability of the Bible today. You know, no one really gives themselves to something that they don't trust. The longer you live in life, the more you feel little hair trigger pullbacks that you maybe can't even articulate as to why you don't trust someone or something. You've had a bad experience, and so that stays with you. My hope is this, that you will not take another person's word for it, whether it's me as, as one of the pastors here at your church, uh, whether it's some talking head on a screen that's an expert in manuscript evidence for the reliability of Scripture, all of which is important. I pray that all of us are supplemental. I pray you won't take another person's word for it, but will continue to lean on the Scriptures and grow on it and test its reliability, watch this, by its, by its use. So that as you use the scripture, as you read the scripture, as you seek to hear and do the words of Jesus, the most simple definition of a disciple I can think of, hear and do what he says. As you do that, that your growth in the reliability of the scriptures will skyrocket. You know, never has it been more important to feed on the Bible than today. Now, what I just said in some ways is really nonsense because it's always the most important day to feed on the Bible. But sometimes circumstances bring things to the surface so that it feels more important on some days and in some seasons than others. Gary Larson is a far side cartoonist. I really enjoy his work and his mind. It's a little bit off if, if you know the far side. Uh, my wife sent me a text of, uh, of someone jumping out of a burning building labeled 2020, landing on a fireman's trampoline and going right into the burning building labeled 2021. Th- that's sort of how it feels already in the first couple weeks of January. You know, uh, I, I pray for you. I pray for you as the headlines will 
continue to roll in, as the headlines will continue to cause the division that they cause, I pray that you will not slip into the kingdom against kingdom that Jesus warned about, the brother against brother that will go on. Jesus promised it in Matthew 24. Don't fall into the error of this. Look at your Bible, hold your Bible, look at your app, hold your iPad or phone for a second. Never has a book been more concerned and offered more direction on racial justice than the Bible. Read it and live it. It is profound. Never has a book been more concerned with leadership, integrity, and fairness than the Bible. Read it, know it, live it. Never has a book been more concerned with who is lawless, who is right, and how to lead people who utterly hate each other into a life of thriving unity than the Bible. This is why we return to it again and again and again. I hope you're tuning into church. I hope you show up at church on the lawn today because you're interested in what God has to say. I'm not here to rehash the headlines. Do current events in our world and the latest current outrage, do those concern me? Of course. Does it affect how I look at the world and how I live? Of course. I want to respond to what's currently happening. But we drink from the deep well and we're interested in what God has to say about these matters and these things. There is an outrage happening right now with not people storming a Capitol building, but people dying and being murdered for their faith. People are being murdered in unjust ways. All the time this is going on. So we're here today to look at what God has to say. The first big bomb has gone off in 2021, right? It didn't take long. And once again, there's a predictable pattern of what this world has to offer. Here's what ensues. Side-taking, name-calling, accusations, talking heads on screens, using their bully pulpit to, to narrowly tell you their side and version of the truth, and total hypocrisy. I hope you have eyes to see this, church. Church, here's my admonition to you. Have none of it. You are called to live in a completely different way. A different pattern has been established for you by Jesus Christ. It's not only been set out by Jesus, but it's empowered by his spirit. Christians are disciples. They take on the character and the ways of their master. They are students of Jesus who loved his enemies, Jesus, who stood up for what was right, Jesus, who didn't sound like one uh, who is just regurgitating the one-liners of both the conservative and liberals of his day. Yes, they had conservative and liberals of his day. Jesus. My prayer is that you will kill your news feed and murder your social media if it is killing your relationship and your soul. Are you being mentored by the world or by the word? Take a quick inventory. A simple look at your time and your thought life. What is dominating your thought life? Let me show you a scripture out of Psalm 1. You should return to this again and again. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in 
with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Let me give you one more from the book of Joshua. Joshua 1.8 says this, Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night, so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Church, if you are not feasting on the Word of God, meditating on it day and night, letting it inform and dominate your thought life, you are hurting your soul because you are being mentored by the world. If you think that the way you're loving one another is primarily happening through social media, think again. You know, arguments gather a crowd, don't they? In a family, uh, if I am correcting one of my children or me and another family member or two family members are working something out, what happens sometimes is other family members come and, and gather around. Do you know how we disciple our children in that moment? We say, excuse us, step away, this doesn't concern you. We do it in a loving and kind way. Sometimes it's very naive and innocent. But arguments gather a crowd. So in a family, we say, this doesn't concern you. And so that way we're able to have the conversation devoid of defensiveness, devoid of the shame and guilt that can pile on when other people are there. Do you know what social media does? It gathers a crowd. The arguments that go on gather a crowd. And do you know what? No one is there ushering people away from the conversation so that it creates space for the confrontation. In fact, what happens is all who are standing around just begin to heap in their comments, whether it's helpful or not. We're here to look at the Scriptures. I'm here to call you, church, to insist, church, that you go to the Bible. In fact, we're calling this Everyday Bible. Why? Because you should be in the Bible every single day. Christians give themselves to this book. We return to it again and again, to feast on it, to grow through it, to wrestle with it, because it's a big book covering a lot of subjects, to search it diligently. Here comes some of the challenge. The challenge is in its ordinariness. Sometimes people who've been gifted the Word of God are just so used to having it, they take it for granted. They go, surely the answers I look for, the wisdom I seek, the peace I'm longing for, doesn't sit in this book. I've tried it. And so they go off searching elsewhere. The everydayness of this is part of the process. I want you to know I'm speaking primarily to Christians today. I welcome people at our church who are coming full of questions and doubts. I I welcome people who are antagonistic and say, "I, I really think Christianity is doing harm. Welcome to the conversation. I'm glad that you're here. But I want you to know that I'm really speaking to Christians today primarily, disciples who believe and want to grow up in maturity in Christ. What I know is this, you will never give yourself to the discipline of Bible reading, of Bible memorization, and more, most importantly, Bible living, 
unless you think it's worth it. Unless you believe it to be reliable, trustworthy. Maybe you've never heard of what I'm going to share to you today. I hope it'll just be a starting point. I only have time to give you a couple of tiny tidbits. I hope that whets your appetite to go and discover more. Maybe you've had your faith in the trustworthiness of the Bible shaken of late. I'm here to point you back to solid ground. For me, over and over and over again, I come back and I go, oh yeah, this really is the most reasonable thing to think about the Bible. Perhaps you are just asleep and distracted by the myriad of voices that are available to us at all times. I'm here to wake you up and call you back to the standard of truth that you've Claim to build your life on and are building your life on. I'm talking today about the most amazing book in the world. And of course, really, it's a collection of books. The Bible is a library of 66 books. Think about this 66 different, unique, distinct books written by some 40 different authors from many, many different walks of life, from kings to shepherds. The most white collar of white collar to the most blue collar of blue collar. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe over a span of 1,500 years. It is written in three different languages, and yet it has one cohesive theme. When you look at the Bible, the arc of the story is one consistent theme. We looked at this last week in the beginning begins Genesis. And until they all reigned happily ever after at the end, the Bible itself is a story being told. What you would think with the stats I just gave to you, you would think logically that this would be a jumbled, contradicting mess. People writing from different continents, languages, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years apart from all walks of life, That should be a jumbled mess, easy for the enemies of the Bible to clearly dismantle and show to the world that it's not cohesive, and yet that's not what we find. We find a big overarching theme of a loving, reaching God on a rescue mission to sinners, bringing them back to himself, all pointing to the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It is the most popular book by far. You say, well, how come I've never seen it on a bestsellers list? It's because it's such a foregone conclusion, they don't include it. Look it up. It's the best-selling book by far. It's also the most controversial book by far. Now, neither one of those popularity nor controversy helps us on its own to determine whether it's reliable or unreliable. Popularity isn't a good measure for this, right? There are lots of things that are wildly popular that are filled with all kinds of contradictory error. But neither does accusation and attacks. Just because it's been attacked a bunch, written about a bunch, studied by experts a bunch, and said to be found wanting doesn't necessarily validate or invalidate the reliability of the scriptures. Let me put on the screen three common questions. I was a youth pastor for almost 20 years, uh, much of that time spending with college students. Go full screen so we can see these questions. Um, People ask this kind of question, how do we know the Bible comes from God? That's a question of inspiration. Is it really inspired? 
A second category of questions is how do we know the Bible really is God's Word? That's a question of, of canonicity is how the, the theologians or the, or the scholars put it together. In other words, it's a question of authority. Which books of the Bible got in? And thirdly, how do we know that the Bible we have today is the Bible God wants us to have? These are, this is the study of transmission. How did we get the Bible that we have? It's a question of accuracy. Hear me, these are great questions to ask. As a pastor, I don't just tolerate those. I welcome those. In fact, I want to stir, we're stirring those up today on purpose because the truth isn't afraid of good questions. It's how we come to things. We hear a claim, we ought to test it. Say, what's the evidence for that? I don't want to just believe that on blind faith. You know, interestingly, uh, you will hear much in the world that says, that says science and faith are divorced. I'm here to report that science and faith are happily married. Science and Christianity are happily married. If you've heard rumors that their relationship's in trouble, that they're divorced, they're flat out wrong. Science and Christianity are happily married. You know, every so often, there's some big challenge that comes to the Bible. These are happening at all times, but sometimes there's a cultural wave, and a lot of people get on board with it. 2003 was a long time ago for some of you. I recognize that, but for us older people, it seems like not that long ago. There's a guy by the name of Dan Brown. He wrote a novel called The Da Vinci Code, and The Da Vinci Code uh, is this fictional novel that gives ammunition to the enemies of Christianity, and it upset the confidence of a lot of Christians. The fact that it was turned into a movie uh, shows its popularity. Now, um, as a surfer, every time I watch surfing footage in a major motion picture, I cringe. Do you know why? Because it seems they never consult actual surfers before they put that footage in the final cut of a movie. It's utterly ridiculous. My father-in-law is a pilot. Anytime there's a flying scene in a movie, I go, Dad, is that real? He goes, of course not. I go, I, I didn't know why. Why is that not real? And he'll explain it to me. And it's the most easy, fundamental thing to spot. Wow, they've taken huge liberties with surfing and piloting planes. Well, it works good for the movies. Here's what goes on with the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code was a clever, it was clearly just a clever fairy tale um, that was spinning partial truths. That's actually easy to spot if you're a Bible person. I have a degree in Bible and theology. It doesn't make me the world's leading expert, but honestly, it's because I live and work in the Bible and, and live it that I go, yeah, that's pretty fake. That's grabbing out of context. That's spinning half truths. I was rolling my eyes in the same way that I watch surfing footage. But it had the ring of a well-researched and plausible plotline. It seemed reliable. And that was good enough for scores of people to have huge problems with it. Now, what is deceptive and bad had a really good effect. Here's what I mean by that. It caused many, many people to go back to their Bible and either need to defend it to their non-Christian friends... Or defend it to their own mind. Have I been living a lie? Have I been believing a lie? I've always been told this was, this was an accurate book from God. And now I'm being told it's not. It caused many Christians to go in and ask these very questions. 
We do this when the foundation is shaken. I said this last week that God has granted all of us equal access to his grace through the cross. And he's granted us equal access to his truth through his books. I'm talking about two giant books. The book of creation, which is ever-present and needs no translation and is available to the illiterate. It's a great thing. And to the book of the Bible that has been prepared and preserved because God is able to take care of the message he wants us to have. When circumstances change, we go back and read the clue. We go back and go, what am I missing? How is this not working? The same old everyday Bible is read in a brand new way because you are living through brand new circumstances. This is true in a, break, a broken engagement. You thought you were going to get married. It didn't happen. God, what are you doing? It's true when you're pursuing your career and something tragic happens. You go back and read the same old Bible. It's been there all along. But you're living through brand new circumstances, so you read it in a fresh way. Watch this short video uh, to sort of help get our heads around this a little bit. You know, the gospel is a lot like this little beauty, a fire extinguisher. You don't really care about it until you see the danger that you're in, and all of a sudden it becomes really, really valuable to you. If the fire extinguisher is the gospel, then all this little writing here on the side is the Bible. You don't read the side of a fire extinguisher because you like how it sounds or it's poetic or you memorize it, like to put it to music. You read it because it's vital to you. And you read it because you need to obey it. You want to get the effect from it. When we read the scriptures, it's not reading uh, for pleasure's sake or just reading for reading's sake. It becomes pleasurable because of the effect that it has on our life. All right, you know, the Bible is as relevant and necessary as ever before. But again, because of this weird part of history that we are walking through day at a time, minute through at a time, it shows itself to be even more so. Reliability becomes crucial in a crisis. Truth be told, until I made that video this week, I don't, I'm not thinking about the reliability of my fire extinguisher. Some of you know the story. I've driven in a Jeep that was on fire. In that moment, the reliability of the fire extinguisher becomes paramount. Nothing else really matters unless that's reliable. So we ask this question, is the Bible reliable? I'm going to take time to go two directions with this, okay? Two helps that will uh, sort of point the way for this. Number one is this. One of the best ways uh, to, to show the reliability of the Bible, oddly enough, is just to teach the Bible to others. Again, I said I'm speaking primarily to Christians. That means I'm, I am uh, realizing that you've already placed the truth in the message of the Bible. That's why you're a Christian in the first place. How do you test the reliability of Scripture? You teach the Bible to others. That means that you wrestle with questions that you have, you wrestle them to the ground so they don't keep popping up again, uh, and then you teach it to others. When you teach to others, you are reminded of the vital truths that have powerful consequences. 
We have a wedding going on today, uh, right through this wall in the backyard. Uh, it's a shelter-in-place wedding, so it's just different than everything normal. But here's one of the beautiful things about it. It's our first wedding from, uh, from our Spanish service uh, uh, member. We're all one church, but from someone who attends the Spanish services and someone who attends the English services. It's an absolutely beautiful picture of the spiritual work that God's doing. You know what helps me and Becky in marriage is to teach other people about marriage. We sat with this couple and did pre-marriage counseling. We don't run pre-marriage counseling like a nice floofy class. We run it like boot camp. We want to push on things that hurt. We want to hit hard-hitting truths. We want, to, we want to prep this couple. And as we do, as we teach it to others, we are reminded of things. Today as I stand up and I call this couple to make a covenant vow for life before God and witnesses, my wife will be in the audience And she will be hearing these words and she will understand that our vows are being reminded. And I am being reminded of the solemn vow that I made on that day. And that there are consequences to stepping outside the binds of of, of marriage. Now, you might be saying, well, Dave, you're a pastor and a parent. It's super obvious that you would teach the Bible to other people. It's true. It's obvious for pastors and parents that they should be teaching the Bible to other people, that we should be learning and living the truth ourselves and then passing it on to those that we love and those that we lead. In my case, it would be to my church family and to my home family. But this is actually just the Christian way. It's true of all Christians. I didn't tell you this ahead of time, so it's a speed test. Turn to Romans 15, verse 1. Romans 15, 1. I'm going to read it for you here. Um, but, but I want you just to hear the Christian way is that the older teaches the younger. Not in age, but in spiritual age. The older has the obligation to teach the younger. And I want you to listen very carefully for specifically the Bible being mentioned in this passage. Okay, Here we go. Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, there's an appeal to scripture right there, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's a quote. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You grow in your trust of the reliability of Scripture as you teach it to other Christians and unbelievers. This is the Christian way. Learn and live the Bible, then pass it on to others. You know what's great? If you've been a Christian for a week, you can do this. You ought to have the humility to say, I better have a whole lot more people pouring into me than I'm pouring into. But if you've been a Christian for a week, you can talk to a person who's been a Christian for only a day. You can go to people who were just like you a week ago and say, hey, I found this new thing called the Bible. I want to begin helping you to understand it. And as they have questions for you, you don't make up answers. You go and find out the answers. You go to someone older in the faith. You say, hey, I got this question. I don't really know what to do with it. And then you grow in the process. 
There are just loads of great resources, but I want to point you to two today. I mentioned some of these, and I want to actually show you some of these. Frank Turek is an apologist, and that means he's a defender of the faith. He does this both by defending its claims, but also by exposing the weak arguments that are leveled against the Scripture. There are constantly criticisms going on against the Bible. I'll tell you who leads the way with this, the universities. The universities have a culture, and to fit into that culture, there is a culture that's anti-Christian, a culture that's anti-biblical. And people are swept up into that culture. And so little truisms are said that are total myths. Oh, science has disproved the Bible. Really? So if you're open to hearing another side, I want you to look at Frank Turek. I've actually left this in your community groups, crossexamine.org. He has loads of books and resources. Two of my favorite are, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. His premise is, it actually takes more faith to be an atheist than to be a believer in uh, a divine being. He doesn't even get as specific into Christianity. The second one is stealing from God, where he shows you how atheists actually steal reason, evidence, science, and other arguments from God in trying to make a case against God. It's a pretty fascinating read. Um, All right, I'm going to let him explain uh, in just a couple minutes some of the reliability tests that you will see. These are available. This is how I spend my lunch hour sometimes, by the way. I love just watching little short apologetic videos. Um, This is one answering the question, is the Bible historically reliable? Take a look. Frank, is the Bible historically reliable? Oh, I think so. Absolutely, Bobby. And I think if you look at six lines of testimony that begin with the letter E, as an overview, you can see that it is. First of all, we have early testimony. Most, if not all, the New Testament documents are written prior to 70 AD. Secondly, we have eyewitness testimony. For example, there's 140 details between the Book of Acts and the Gospel of John that have been verified to either be eyewitness details or details that only an eyewitness could know or some, or they knew somebody who was an eyewitness. Uh, thirdly, we have embarrassing testimony. That may sound a little strange, but there's so many embarrassing details in the text that the writers never would have made up. Like, for example, they never would have called, have Jesus call Peter Satan. They never would have had Peter deny Christ three times. They certainly wouldn't have run away while the women were the brave ones at the crucifixion, right? That doesn't make any sense. They wouldn't have the women be the first witnesses. They wouldn't doubt that he had risen from the dead after he had risen from the dead. There's so many embarrassing details. This is not a made-up story. Uh, Number four, we have excruciating testimony. That literally means out of the crucifixion that these individuals died brutal deaths excruciating deaths when they could have saved themselves by saying Jesus had not risen from the dead, but they went to their deaths anyway. We also have expected testimony. That's number five. In other words, there's Old Testament prophecy that causes us to expect a Messiah in the first century with the same characteristics Jesus had. Just just look at Isaiah 53. You don't need to go much further than that. And then uh, finally, we have extra biblical testimony. Uh, We have... Ten ancient non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus' life. And when you take their brief references to Jesus and early Christianity, you get a storyline congruent with the New Testament. So, for those six reasons, early, eyewitness, embarrassing, excruciating, extra-biblical, and expected testimony, we, we pretty much know that the New Testament is historically reliable. All right, so I don't know about you, but I need to come back to this stuff again and again. It's actually really invigorating to me to come back and go, oh yeah, 
There's these puzzle pieces that fit together. Aren't you glad for the body of Christ? There are people who are experts in certain areas. When we went to do a series, in fact, you can catch this on our website. There's uh, an apologetic series, six weeks, um, that was called Grow to Go. And that was our apologetic series. You know what I did? I went to my friend Neil, and I said, Neil, you're an expert in this. Um, Would you show me how should I help our people with this? And um, I think in that series... I actually had Neil come and speak. I said, can you just come and do this? I could have taken notes on what Frank Turek just said and handed it to you, but I actually want to point you to other teachers. As a parent, when my kids get to a math problem that exceeds my ability to really explain it well, what do I do? I bring in a math tutor who's really, really good at it. And I have the humility to point to other teachers. So do the same thing. And for yourself, um, know that you don't have to have all the answers. Go and learn it uh, as you pass it on to others. Let me give you one more. Uh, Frank Turek has been on our stage before a couple of different times. He's, he's debated Christopher Hutchins, who's now deceased, but one of the most uh, prominent atheists of his day. Um, he's a phenomenal mind and gift to the church. A second guy is a guy by the name of Sean McDowell, son of Josh McDowell, another famous apologist. And I want to just show you uh, him talking about is the New Testament reliable. And again, both of these websites are in the notes this week so that you can uh, have a resource to refer back to and dig deeper. By the way, each of those six E's could take an hour-long message to really go in and dive into the, into the details. Guess what? Those are available. If you want longer explanations to thoughtful questions, go dig for it. It's there. It'll kind of blow your mind. But I'm just giving you little surfacey snapshots to whet your appetite. Take a look at this one from Sean McDowell's ministry. How do you know that you can trust the New Testament as being reliable? After all, it's a pretty big book. In fact, it's 27 books. Let me give you three quick tests about how historians judge any ancient book, and we'll see how the New Testament fares. The first one, we just ask the question, does it claim to be true? It's called the internal evidence test. When you look at the New Testament writers, it's remarkable about how many times they go out of their way to tell us that truth is important. So Luke, who's a medical doctor, begins his gospel by saying, many have undertaken to examine the events among us, but I have carefully recorded truth and am passing on to you, Theophilus, essentially what I know to be true. 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says, we're not following clever invented tales. We were eyewitnesses. And in 1 John, the author says, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched with our hands, we proclaim to you. So the biblical writers claim to be eyewitnesses. They claim to have carefully reported truth. And now what's amazing is, as we know from the apostles, they were willing to suffer and willing to die for their belief that this story was true. And they were eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. That tells me that they really believed that it was true. Now, the second question is, you've heard of the telephone game, how word is passed from one person to the next over time. Well, what about the Bible that's been passed for 2,000 years? Well, scholars have what's called the bibliographical test, where we simply look at how many manuscripts do we have and how early are those manuscripts. The more manuscripts we have, the earlier they are, the better chance we have of reconstructing the original. Well, friends, for many ancient documents, manuscripts are 300, 500, 1,000 years plus removed. The New Testament, we have a portion of the Gospel of John at least within 40 or 50 years. The copies of the New Testament are way earlier than any other ancient books that people don't even question. 
But then the other question is, how many copies do we have? The more copies we have, the better chance of getting the original. Well, for a lot of ancient documents, we have 10, 12, 50, maybe a couple hundred. For the New Testament, we have over 23,000 handwritten copies. This gives us confidence when we compare the copies that we can reconstruct what was originally written down. Number three, what we call the external evidence test. Is there evidence outside of the book that supports the internal claims? And this is where archaeology and ancient writings come in. You know there's writings outside the Bible that confirm that Jesus claimed to be God, at least that Christians believed that he was God. There's writings that confirm his life, that he purportedly did miracles, where he lived, and that he died. We find this in people like Josephus and Tacitus. And then the archaeological record supports the New Testament as a whole. We know where Jesus was born. We know where Jesus died. In fact, we have the ossuary of Caiaphas, one of the high priests who oversaw the condemnation and ultimately led to the trial and death of Jesus. But now we actually have an inscription from Caesarea pointing to Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman governor who oversaw the trial and condemned Jesus to death. In fact, we have the crucified remains of a man named Yehohanan, who was crucified with nails around the time that Jesus lived, showing the biblical account about crucifixion with nails is correct. Friends, a lot of questions can be raised about the New Testament, but when we look at it broadly speaking, the authors claim to be eyewitnesses, we see accurate information they report, and they will only die for it. We see many more manuscripts earlier than any other ancient book. And third, the archaeological record supports it. We have good reason to believe that the New Testament is reliable and true. All right. Listen, uh, here's, a, here's something I've found is that there will always be questions to the mysterious life of faith that we are called to that will be in this grab bag of questions. Those don't ever seem to stop. The more I've lived life, the more there are questions. But what I would encourage you is this. There are some written on big, giant letters, bold, and you go, man, I've got to get this one nailed and settled. And so let me wrestle this one to the ground, and let me wrestle this one, and let me wrestle this one. And then you get to a point where you say, there's still other questions, but man, I've, I've got enough of the puzzle piece here that this seems really reliable. I'm going to move forward on it. In other seasons, as more questions come, get those questions, but those questions will never stop. Here's my challenge to you. I think more than any other testimony or answers that we think we need, that we can then build our life or move forward trusting the reliability of the Scripture, none can be more powerful than this. Jesus found the Bible reliable. So number two is this. If you want two giant helps for testing the reliability and growing in your trust of the Bible, teach it to other people. You will find it to bear fruit, just like it promises to do. You will find it changing you. You will find it trustworthy. And secondly, mimic Jesus because he trusted the Bible. Someone who's a scribe out there and good with their fingers, write these verses down because I didn't put them in the handouts. And these will give you just a small sampling showing Jesus trusted and commended the Bible to other people. Here's number one. Jesus knew it was, a, it was inspired and sufficient. Someone write down Matthew 4.4 in the chat. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It says, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Jesus knew the Bible to be inspired and sufficient. Number two, he said that all parts were important and actively being accomplished. Someone jot down Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Matthew 5, 17 through 18 says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's a summary of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Think about this. One of the earliest pictures we have of Jesus is him as a boy in the temple. What is he doing? He's discussing the Bible with the scholars, with the temple leaders. Another powerful picture. He refers to the Bible. Of course, this would be his Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. He was living the New Testament. But he refers to the Bible in terms of actual history. He believed the people mentioned there actually existed. And he talked about the events as if they actually occurred. Let me mention just a couple. In Matthew 19, Adam and Eve. In Matthew 12, Jonah and the great sea monster. And in Matthew 24, Noah and the flood. He doesn't refer to that as fairy tale. He refers to it as biblical history, as history. There's not one slight hint that Jesus cast doubt on any of these stories contained in the Old Testament. Here's another one. He saw the scripture as unified, authoritative work of truth. Luke 24, 44. We're going to get to this as we wrap up Luke. It says, Then he said to him, to, to them, that everything written about me, Jesus talking, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He wrapped all of that into a unified, cohesive canon or, or body of work called the Scriptures. He also used the Scriptures to guide and defend his actions. Remember him driving out the people making money, ripping people off in worship? Mark eleven seventeen, he says, it is written, there it is again, he keeps referring back to the Bible, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Why are you doing this? He points back to the scripture to defend his actions and guide his actions. Lastly, I would just point you to John 8. In fact, one of your plans of action, an action item out of this morning is to read chapter 8 in its entirety. There's this back and forth, and Jesus keeps pointing his opponents back to the Word. I'll give you just the highlights. In John 8, 31, it says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my Word, catch that, If you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's Jesus doing? He's claiming to be speaking God's word, and he's claiming it is absolutely true. Here's John 8, 38. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. He's delineating the fact that he is speaking the very words of his father, God. Last one, John 8, 51. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
Church, Jesus relied on the Bible in full, and he says to trust the New Testament. That's the words he spoke. If anyone abides in my words, well, what's that? That's the Gospels, and all the rest of the New Testament is looking back on the life of Jesus Christ. I'll stop here, but there's plenty more. Jesus quotes the prophets to guide his logic. He recounts the histories to teach his lessons. Jesus relies on the Bible. Question time, student of Jesus, one who calls Jesus our master, do we really need anything else? All the other extra evidence is actually great, but unnecessary, because we see Jesus trusting the reliability of the Bible. Listen, next week, I'm going to get insanely practical. I know some of this is theoretical. Uh, The next two weeks, we're going to just talk about the readability of the Bible. And I hope to just equip you and remind you and grow you a little bit in uh, making your way along in being a student of the Bible. Let me pray, and then we're going to wrap up with this song about the love of God. We're going to return to the great love that God has for us revealed in the Scriptures. God, thank you so much for your written word. We say this all the time at Neighborhood Bible Church, that if it's important, you write it down. Whether that's instructions to our kids before we leave, or whether that's a contract. God, we put in writing the things that are important. Thank you for giving us something that we can come back to, the written record of your people. God, I thank you that when circumstances change, we come back with renewed vigor, with renewed fresh set of eyes to say, what must be in here? God, guide us, lead us, comfort us, instruct us, rebuke us, steer us. So God, we give ourselves to the study, to the learning, to the knowing, to the doing, to the teaching of Scripture afresh this morning. It's in the Son, uh, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.